This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Should esports be included at the Brisbane Olympics? Yeah, it's a decade away, but people are already asking. There's a big push. And it's kind of easy to see why, because gaming is drawing bigger audiences than a heap of traditional sporting competitions. And don't even get me started on the prize money. We're diving into esports a bit later. So if you're into it, stay listening. If you're not into it, stay listening. Also coming up, we're checking in with the trans community ahead of International Transgender Day of Visibility. If you're wanting to know how to be a good ally during a really tough time, you're going to find out. First, though, just a warning, we're about to speak about suicide and family violence. If you might be triggered, tune out for 10 minutes. Hack. Rates of suicidal ideation and rates of psychological distress all increasing in young people. On Triple J. Yeah, we know suicide is the most common cause of death for young Australians. It's a national tragedy and a massive problem that needs so much more attention. But what are the reasons behind these horrifying statistics? Like, you'll hear about stuff like drug addiction, mental health issues, and these are very big factors. We need to be talking about them. But there's one thing that never gets talked about in all of the discussion around suicide and young people, and that's family violence. And it's pretty surprising considering how many young people experience family violence. We know this. We talk about young Australians being forced to leave home, couch surfing... A big report into this has been put together and it's been released. And with me now are two people who've helped with it. The first is Tash Anderson. Tash is a survivor advocate and they're with us now. Hey, Tash, welcome to Hack. Hi, thank you for having me. And Shauna Moore is a social justice lawyer and is with Melbourne City Mission, which is a community support organisation that deals with issues like homelessness, mental health. Hey, Shauna, thank you for joining us as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Tash, I want to start with you. You grew up experiencing violence in your family. How young were you when you first remember being aware of it? I was about two or three years old. Um, It's been a constant throughout my whole life. So, um, And what I remember of that was my my, uh, mother being pushed up against the kitchen stove by my father. Yeah, it was a range of violence. Um, Everything, like, towards both myself, my siblings um, and my mother, it was financial abuse, psychological abuse, physical abuse. Yeah, anything that you can think of is what occurred within our family. And Tash, you mentioned there you had siblings. What ended up happening when when you were children? Did you have to leave home? Yeah, so uh, we entered out-of-home care twice. So uh, first, the first time that happened when I, was when I was about seven years old. I went into sort of what was group family homes at the time for about a year, just bounced around in the system and then was released back to family where I continued to experience abuse, um, neglect uh, and family violence and then went back into care at 11, not because because of my experience or the experience of my siblings, but because of the actions of my father that led to criminal charges that would have put us at risk as well if he had stayed or if we'd stayed living with him. Part of um, your involvement in this research is you obviously reflecting on your experiences, but also the experiences of your brother. Are you, are you able to tell us what happened to your brother? Yeah, um, so he has always been or always had a lot of trouble um, growing up, like especially being in a family violence situation where he was harmed both physically, emotionally and in many other different ways by our father. 
And as he grew up and went into the system, um, he he would constantly run away. The system ended up not really giving him what he needed and uh, basically he was put in the too hard basket, uh, which was, you know, not his fault. It was the experience that he went through and five months after turning 18, after he was... Um, he, he, he lost all support from child protection. He ended his life. When your brother died, Tash, which is an awful thing for anyone to have to go through, did people look into the causes behind it, uh, what your brother was feeling and experiencing? Um, no, I think there was, uh, I, I, as I looked at the coroner's report, there was uh, one paragraph that basically summed up an experience um, of a troubled childhood, and then the rest of the um, report was about what led up to his death um, on the on the day of his death. Shauna, I want to bring you in here. Is what Tash is describing an experience that many young people go through that you've seen a lot over the years in your work? Yes, definitely. But I just want to thank Tash as well for sharing their story so bravely and and the unbelievable advocacy that. Tash has been driving for almost 10 years now in this space. I just really want to acknowledge that and that's really what's inspired this report. In terms of what's happening for young people in Australia, I'd like to start saying um, between about a quarter and to a half of young people growing up in Australia are experiencing family violence and there are no specialist family violence services designed for young victim survivors so their risks um, of their lives are really being overlooked. We know family violence is by far the leading cause of youth homelessness in Australia so about 90% of the young people that come to our services at Melbourne City Mission uh, are escaping family violence or have grown up with it in their homes. And we've got up to 80% of some of the young people in our um, programs who have been hospitalised for mental ill health. And as you've touched on, the youth suicide rates in Australia are alarming. We've got, you know, between for 15 to 24-year-olds, uh, 38% of deaths are attributed to suicide. I think we've lost 434 children and young people in 2021 alone and have seen, you know, a a dramatic increase since about 2010. I think it was about 35% increase. So these statistics really tell a powerful story across the country. However, as Tash um, illustrated, you know, from their experience, that youth suicide really sits outside the family violence narrative. There's a complete disconnection between the two in terms of government reporting and data collection, as Tash mentioned. Uh, therefore, these family violence deaths, which we're calling it in this in this work, are being overlooked. And the risk of family violence, therefore, for children and young people continues to be underestimated. And so what we're seeing as a consequence is a family violence uh, and broader system which includes services and policies and practices on the ground that are not designed to identify or support or protect these children and young people as victim survivors in their own right. Well, yeah, I mean, we know that this issue in terms of family violence, as you mentioned, through the intimate partner lens, very important way of looking at it, but it's a lot more broad and widespread than that. And it's just interesting that we've got these two massive issues affecting young people in terms of family violence, in terms of suicide, but the links are not being made and no one's really looking into it. And as you say, it's having an impact on, you know, the support that people are 
able to get. Shauna, why do you think it is being left out of the discussion? The Missing Figures report really reveals how family violence risks are being overlooked in youth suicide reporting and and highlights um, this monumental gap in knowledge and in data. It shows how these young deaths are currently being masked by other presenting issues at at the time of their death, such as you mentioned, whether it's harmful substance use or mental ill health. But this is ignoring the underlying driver, which, you know, in so many instances is family violence and other forms of child abuse. So we know, um, you know, if a woman, you know, dies by suicide in the context of family violence, advocates rightly claim that she's died as a result of family violence. But if a young person dies by suicide during or following a violent, you know, violence from a parent or carer, it's understood more in the context of mental ill health alone. So, you know, we say just as... I guess gender inequality was originally framed in terms of women being hysterical. Um, We need to really reframe this false narrative and look at this issue for what it is, which is youth inequality and the systemic overlooking of children and young people who experience family violence in their own right. It's, I think it's the chicken and the egg in terms of you have a system set up to respond to women um, and accompanying young children and therefore you're missing these fatal risks. But because we've got these gaps in in government reporting and data that's not linking the two together, the risk is being underestimated and so therefore we're, you know, prioritising our system response, understandably, for what we see as the greatest risk, which is, you know, women. So I think it is that chicken in the egg where we really need to address this gap in knowledge and therefore then we can really understand what these fatal impacts are of family violence for children and young people. We need to make sure that the the grief and the trauma that's still experienced is, is, you know, has a good chance of, I'm not saying that you ever really recover, but that there's enough support, you know, really wrapped around every child and young person who experiences family violence and not assume that just because they've left a violent home that they're okay now. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with two people involved in a big report that's been released this week highlighting the links between family violence and suicide in young people. Survivor advocate Tash Anderson and Shauna Moore from Melbourne City Mission. Tash, one of the other things... I imagine when you're growing up and you've been exposed maybe to family violence for a long time is maybe you don't even see it as that, like you don't recognise what it is. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Like for a lot of young people, you may be growing up in family violence, it may be the only thing you've ever known and you don't have any frame of reference uh, for what is a good healthy relationship, what is family violence, what isn't family violence. And so it took me until I was 21 to realise and recognise that what I was experiencing was family violence. And that was only because I was involved with uh, the Why Change team, which all had, like from Berry Street, who all have very similar experiences. And we could talk to each other about it and we could reflect as a community on the impacts of our early life um, and how that's played out throughout our adolescence and into adulthood. I think that as a, as a society and a, and a culture, we have a real issue with the way that we see children and young people. We don't generally see them as people. We see them as not, not fully formed or as objects, and you can see that in the way that um, custody battles play out where children are often you know, uh, seen as objects in the way that 
you know, one parent gets custody or the other parent doesn't, and children yet generally don't have says in a lot of things. This is a big issue with the service system as well. So my experience and the experience of a lot of young people that I work with and that um, I've heard from is that, you know, like you have to retell your story over and over and over again. And oftentimes people won't believe you. Um, and if they do believe you, the system and the, the services aren't really equipped to help you. So, you know, like at, at points where you're trying to get to recovery from family violence, you may be waiting up to a year to access a service like Headspace and then they may not be able to help you with the level of risk and crisis that you're in. You have to scream at the top of your lungs to get anything. Tash, what kind of support do you think may have helped your brother? I think that early intervention probably would have been a big one. Um, they're really, we were known to the system since sometime in the in the 1990s. And all throughout our, our time with uh, child protection involvement, there was no no real check-in directly with us about what we needed, uh, where we needed to go. So, like, we need things like, yeah, a specialist uh, family violence service that really sees children and young people as victims in their own right. And we also need dedicated recovery services uh, specifically for young people who are experiencing family violence, um, but also other forms of crisis. It's a massive, massive issue and this report is so important. I I just want to thank you both for speaking to us about it. Um, You know, Tash Anderson, thank you for being so open and brave. Shauna Moore, thank you as well for joining us on Hack. Thank you. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And yeah, a lot of messages of support for Tash, especially Johnny saying so brave and courageous for Tash to be sharing their story. An amazing person, respect. Another person, why don't we talk more about trauma? If it doesn't cause suicide, it can cause a lifetime of major mental health issues. And another person says, it's messed up. I've heard too many foster care stories like Tash's. We definitely need to stop attributing suicide to individual issues and recognise the systemic causes. Hack. The hurt that this is causing the trans and gender diverse community is indescribable. The slurs that we're hearing from the speaker and from her supporters are abhorrent. On Triple J. So this Friday, tomorrow, marks International Transgender Day of Visibility. And you know what? After what we've seen across the country over the past couple of weeks particularly, it's probably never been more important. You've seen it on your news feeds. You would have heard it here on Hack. Australia's trans community has been subjected to a lot of hatred and hostility lately. And we need to remember that all of this is having a direct impact on people's lives. So we're checking in. Jeremy Wiggins is with Transcend Australia. It's a national peer support advocacy group for trans people. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. We've seen and heard some really full-on stuff lately. You're out there in the trans community speaking to people, checking in. What is the mood at the moment? I myself am a bit of an older trans guy. Um, Transitioned like close to 20 years ago. And I have to say, this is the first time that I have felt like it's peaked at a really critical point. People are afraid. They're afraid for their safety. The increasing attacks are starting to filter into direct hate messages, even to our organisation or to trans individuals. The recent events across Australia and New Zealand are also, they're not an isolated event. Our communities are under siege right now and our rights are at risk of being stripped away by these coordinated efforts. And it's really causing significant distress. When people are given platforms to spread hateful messages, it emboldens the general public to feel like they have a right to treat trans people like that when they see them in the street. 
And so it increases the risk of violence. And that is what is happening now. People are being assaulted. People are being attacked or verbally abused or harassed in the street. And so it's not just a systemic issue in terms of human rights. It's now a general safety issue for our community. And I'm also hearing reports from families talking about the incidents that their children are experiencing out there in their lives and families are worried about the safety of their children. Well, yeah, that's right, because obviously you're supporting the families um, of, you know, young trans people in Australia. The flow-on effects uh, for all of this is huge. Do you think considering everything you've just said in terms of direct threat to people's safety that we're seeing enough action, enough support from leaders, from political leaders? Well, we recently saw uh, the Victorian government and the Minister for Equality and Premier Daniel Andrews stand up in support of the trans community, which is fantastic. But I'm not seeing enough of that on a federal level or from other states and territories. I'd like to see stronger action, particularly around extending legal protections to stop vilification and hate speech to protect marginalised communities. When I also refer to human rights, I'm not just talking about the right to live free from harassment, abuse and violence, which trans people deserve. But it's also about the the human right to access gender-affirming healthcare. And that's constantly in the news and at risk of being stripped away, even though it is life-saving for young people to have access to gender-affirming healthcare. And trans kids, the way that they are being spoken about in the media or in the streets, They absorb this. They may not speak about how they feel, but they internalise it and it impacts them. And what we know is that if people have access to gender-affirming healthcare and they have access to a supportive family and a safe school environment and a positive social group, they do better in life. This Friday is the Day of Visibility, International Transgender Day of Visibility. Is everything that's happening at the moment impacting the way people are marking that day? Like, do you think that trans people are feeling less confident to go out there and celebrate like they normally would? Yeah, I would say there's a bit of a mixed response, as as you'd expect with diverse communities. Um I think there are a number of trans people who feel too afraid to be out in public right now, particularly uh, due to the events that happened recently with uh, neo-Nazis joining forces of anti-trans groups to literally call for the eradication of trans people. But trans people are also needing more than ever our allies to step up and support us. I can't stress that enough that this is an emergency. We ha- we need a call to action. Trans Day of Visibility is usually something where we celebrate trans excellence, trans joy, uh, the achievements of trans people, and we're visible with that. But actually, visibility can only be achieved if safety is guaranteed. And our safety right now and the safety of trans young people feels like it's under threat. We're really happy, though, that Georgie Stone, who's the patron of Transcend Australia, has been invited to give a national address in Canberra on Tuesday to celebrate Trans Day of Visibility at the National Press Club. And that's a historic moment in terms of one of the youngest people, particularly the youngest trans person and only the second trans person ever 
to give an address at the National Press Club. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Jeremy Wiggins from Transcend Australia to mark International Transgender Day of Visibility. Jeremy, you were talking before about allies kind of stepping up and showing up at this point in particular. If you're not part of the trans community but you do want to be an ally, how should you be helping? How would how do you think people uh, can be showing that support? If you're listening and you want to step in and take action and you are horrified by what has occurred lately towards trans people, um, you can do that actually by going to our socials, um, Transcend Australia, because Georgie Stone has just launched a campaign to fight for trans rights. But there's also some real quick tips I can give you. Check on your trans friends. Check on the trans people in your life. Ask them how can you support them. They're likely to be feeling really distressed right now. And that will be a huge help. Donate to a trans organisation. We are the most underfunded space in Australia um, and we need your support. Build support amongst your networks. Talk about what's going on for us. Educate yourself. Mobilise support. And also take action by writing to your MP. What people need to understand is that there is a coordinated global attack on trans people right now. It was probably timed perfectly um, by anti-trans groups to have those rallies right after World Pride. And we only have to look at what's happening in the UK and the US to be concerned. And we have an opportunity here in Australia to stand up and to ensure that those activities that are happening overseas can be stopped before it gets worse here in Australia. All right. Jeremy Wiggins from Transcend Australia, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks so much. Yeah, and remember, if any of these stories that we've covered on Hack today, on family violence, suicide, on the issues we've just heard about impacting the trans community have affected you, you can always call Lifeline. There's always someone there to speak to. They're on 13 11 14. Hack. An era that places human rights and intergenerational equity at the forefront of climate decision-making. On Triple J. So there was a big decision made overnight globally. Countries around the world voted for the world's top court, the International Court of Justice, to tell us what countries' legal obligations are to fight climate change. Now, this is happening because one of our Pacific neighbours, Vanuatu, pushed for it at the United Nations. But the interesting thing here is it was actually students that came up with this legal idea. It's pretty wild. Let's find out more. Joe Lord is the host of Hacks Climate Pod. Who's going to save us? She's right across it and she's with us now. Hey, Joe, thanks for coming on. Ah, Dave, lovely to be on. <laughs> Where did this come from? Where did this whole idea come from? It actually came from university classroom in Vanuatu from a bunch of students there who were studying law and they were discussing this idea of what's called advisory opinions. They're talking about a previous case that was unsuccessful and they were like, well, what about if you rephrased it and you changed it and you made it really about human rights and climate change? And they're talking about how that's a really significant issue for them and in places like Vanuatu. And they were like, hmm, this is actually, I think we're onto something. This is a really interesting idea. And so from there, they were like, why don't we get some signatures together from university that they were literally like running around the uni campus getting signatures and decided to pitch it to one of the ministers at Vanuatu in Vanuatu. So they pitched it to a minister and was like, you should take this up. You should take this to the UN. I think we're on to something. That's crazy. So how is it actually going to work? So basically what these are, they're called advisory opinions and it's from the International Court of Justice, which is the highest court in the world and is essentially the judicial arm of the UN. 
what it does is it kind of sets up like a general consensus or guidance for how the legal system around the world should approach climate change. So it's kind of this way of clarifying and outlining what the current international law has to say about a legal question. So in this case, it's about human rights and about climate change. So it's not legally binding in and of itself, but it kind of, it just provides that guidance for climate lawsuits around the world. But it's really significant because it's incredibly hard to get one of these advisory opinions from the International Court of Justice because you need to get the support of at least half the countries around the world. So it's like minimum 96 or 97 countries around the whole world have to agree with what you're doing and agree with the exact wording. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting, like you're saying, it's not binding. So it's not like the courts can say, um, president, whoever, or prime minister, whoever, you've got to go to jail for not doing enough on climate change. However, it sets kind of the standard. I mean, that seems really significant. Yeah. And what Vanuatu is hoping is that it will make countries more accountable to the obligations that they've made around climate change and the pledges that they've set up to reduce emissions because there are a lot of pledges that are made. There's a lot of promises around how much you know, countries will reduce their emissions by, but we haven't really established the consequences for what will happen if they don't. And it could also potentially, and this is a could, it's, I guess it's a wait and see, but it could also establish obligations that other countries have to help places like Vanuatu deal with the effects of climate change. Like, for example, cleaning up after natural disasters, because these places are incredibly vulnerable to climate change and they're already seeing the impacts of climate change and natural disasters. So we don't actually know exactly a lot of the detail because the International Court of Justice is going to go away and write this advisory opinion, but they're just some of the things that could come from it. Yeah, look, it's so important to keep across this stuff. You can go read if you want more details on the ABC News website. They've got some articles up explaining it. Also, the Who's Going to Save Us podcast, Joe, you interviewed these students, right? Yeah, actually, one of our features on Who's Going to Save Us last year was all about these university students and basically the, the story behind this of how they were in that university class. They were running around, they were like, finding suits to try and go and present to the minister. And so it's basically the backstory of how this all came about. Amazing. We can go listen to that. Who's going to save us wherever you get your podcasts. Joe Lauder, thanks for breaking it all down for us. Thanks, Dave. Hack. Pro gamers don't just sit around all day munching on Doribos and drinking Mountain Dew. On Triple J. Hey, did you know last year the League of Legends Championship had twice as many viewers as the NRL Grand Final? Wild. There's a lot of potential here. Where does Australia sit on the esports scene, though? Will we one day have Olympic-level gamers? Our reporter Nathan Nigidul has been checking it out. They've come a long way from LAN parties in some nerd's basement. Esports have become internationally recognised video game competitions where elite professional players compete for tens of millions of dollars in front of fans all around the world. For the first time, the Australian Institute of Sport, the government agency that develops professional athletes, have just launched new research into esports. They want to be prepared for the next level of Australian esport players, making us a leading contender globally. It's not as far out as you think. The Olympics are already there, launching a special virtual sports event in Singapore. And pretty soon, games like League of Legends, Dota 2 and Counter-Strike could be played alongside physical sport. 
the Olympics is moving towards this virtual digital version of sport, we need to be ready for it. We can't have an Olympic committee, an Olympic year go, yep, we're going to do esports this year. And, and us as the Australian High Performance System go, oh, oh my God, we have no idea how to, how to do this. That's Dr. Dylan Polis, a researcher at Southern Cross University. They've just received the first ever grant from the AIS to develop a program for eSport players. What the AIS have asked me to do is go to all of the best coaches, players and team owners in Australia and go, what are you doing that's making the best eSport players in this country? Is it how they sleep? Is it their diet? Is it their physical training? What changes do we have to make to catch up to these international teams and overtake them before something like eSports is introduced into the Olympics? But it's not as easy as grinding a few hours to get good. Dr. Polis says he's found a few stressors that overlap between these gamers and elite athletes in physical sports like NRL and cricket. When you think about some esports competitions going for five hours and you have to maintain focus, attention and make really high level decisions under a lot of pressure, if you're cardiovascularly fit, you've got strong postural muscles to keep you upright and in a good position, some of those players might be making better decisions in the fourth hour of those intense gameplay. This research hopes to figure out how to keep players safe when training, suggesting things like taking breaks during longer sessions to prevent burnout and working with sports psychologists on mental health issues that come with any high-pressure sport. I am not a competitive player. I freak out during like multiplayer matches because I'm like, I'm I'm all thumbs. There are some, you know, amazing esports contenders here that I can definitely see going to take the world stage. For video game streamers like Jem, this is a huge step. But I think this definitely helps to, you know, hopefully in the public eye, those who aren't in the games industry, help legitimise esports because these people like put their heart and soul, so much time, effort into what they do, perfecting their craft and honing these skills. I think it's great to see that like publicly recognised. As for the future of esports, Dr. Polis thinks it's looking more and more accessible every day. I think esports will be the biggest sporting industry in the world in the next couple of decades. And people often laugh at me when I say that, but when you think about esports, you don't have to be fully able-bodied to play it. Anyone can play esports almost from anywhere. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.